Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, mutual aid, non-domination, and cooperation in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. In this quick intro, I just want to tell you that today I will be talking with my guest about pirates. Yes, pirates. Like anarchists, obvious villains, and perhaps also it's more complicated than that. After the music, Gabriel Kuhn author of Life Under the Jolly Roger, Reflections on Golden Age Piracy, will be joining me. Let's get started. Uh, Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. This is uh, the long-awaited episode about pirates, and I am joined by an expert on the connection between piracy and anarchism. He even wrote a book about it, uh, Gabriel Kuhn. Gabriel, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Can you just start by telling us how you, uh, how you came to write a book about, about pirates? Yeah, I, I can. I'm, I, it's a fairly interesting story, at least for myself. I'm not going to make it too long, but it, it it started with me writing an essay about, um, well, an essay about piracy, an essay using piracy as a background to um, developing radical theory that I thought I that I felt was interesting when I was about 20 years old, I think, as a philosophy student. And I was at the time very much interested in, in French philosophy. So Gilles Deleuze and Michel Foucault are much more critical now, but that's another story. So, so we're, we're in the early 1990s. And I wanted to write something about this and express how their ideas entailed uh, radical political uh, visions. And to make that interesting to readers, I used the history of piracy as a, as a background on which I tried to present those ideas. So it was sort of an, an, an experiment of a 20-year-old, and I sent the essay. It was supposed to be part of a collective book that I was doing with some other students. And so we sent a couple of essays to this publisher and then never really finished this collection, but the publisher had read what we had sent and wanted to bring out this particular essay on piracy as a little booklet. So this was in German. And so that appeared um, in, in 1991 or two or something. And, um, and, and I wasn't really, so I wasn't a historian piracy, nothing like that. It came from, from somewhere else. I went traveling a few years later. I knew nothing about it. That essay was translated into English and published by Black Rose Books in Canada, together with another much longer German text on, on women pirates. And that was published as a book called Women Pirates and something else I do not recall anyway my my essay was part of it and I think that book was fairly popular in the 1990s and now you fast forward to 2007-8 and PM Press gets founded as a new radical publisher in the U.S. and I knew the people who founded it and they were looking for uh, to build their catalog so reaching out to authors they knew and they got in touch with me and said, hey, didn't you write that essay about piracy? 
don't you want to write a book about piracy? We think that would be interesting. Remember, too, that was a time when the Pirates of the Caribbean, the, the, the movie series with Johnny Depp was pretty popular. So I think that was it was both that they genuinely thought the topic was interesting, but I think there was also thought that, you know, that'd be a book that would sell and it's good if you start up a new publisher to have a few topics that you think would attract readers. And so essentially they asked me and I was, uh, yeah, that was a long time ago. I wrote that essay and I'm not really an expert as such on piracy, but this would give me an excuse to actually do some more proper studying, much more proper historical studying that I had done for that original essay. And so I took that time and, and, and worked on, on uh, this book, Life Under the uh, Jolly Roger. Okay, it's, it's so interesting that you talk about the trendiness of pirates. There is, there is a new TV show about pirates um, that just came out of that I haven't uh, seen it from the same team that made Flight of the Concords and um, what we do in the shadows. It could, be that, it could be that pirates are about to have another historical moment. And I'm, I'm fascinated. I mean, as you talk about this, one of the interesting things about pirates in at least American culture is that they like, like so many cultural forces seem to embody simultaneously our greatest fears and our greatest desires. So from one point of view, being a pirate is, is the worst thing imaginable and stands for uh, death and theft and sexual violence. And on the other hand, um, and the, the creators of that new that new show, Our Flag Means Death, talked about this. There's this very romantic allure of the life of pirate as a life of freedom and discovery. I don't think there's any pirate narratives I can think of that go that are mainstream that go as far as like Robin Hood to like the pirates as heroes. But nevertheless, the fear and loathing of pirates and the love and romantization of, of pirates are linked together in the same way that gunslingers um, in, in the Western myth are kind of to be admired and also feared. And you want to be one, but if you're a regular person, you want, don't want to be in a town that is found by Vikings or pirates or, or gunslingers because they are terrifying at the same time. So this idea of like pirates, the worst thing one can be and also our hidden dream is something I hadn't really really thought of. So let's, so let's, I guess I'll just start there. Does that, does that sense of pirates um, transfer into Europe? Do they, do they fulfill this kind of romantic role in the, in the same way? I, I, absolutely. I I think that you, you just sort of captured the, captured the essence of the, the, the pirate image in, in Euro-American culture. I, I dare to say that it even extends beyond that, but I don't feel as comfortable you know, saying that about about other cultures, I know too little. But in Europe and America, that is is uh, North America. That that is certainly that is certainly the case. And I think what you're saying, I think it also you could just say that the what what the this sort of double image of of piracy reflects is that is what is a notion or two notions that 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 most people um, also connect with freedom in general. So on the one hand, it opens up these enormous possibilities and you can do whatever you want. On the other hand, it is also terrifying because you're thrown out there into a world where 
all the uh, regular forces, um, state, uh, regular society, even the family, whatever, they, they kind of disappear. So what gives you security also disappears. So freedom is both very, very exciting and alluring, but also terrifying in a way. And I think pirates, and you mentioned some other uh, examples, it's just that pirates for different reasons have become, uh, have gotten a very, very uh, a prominent status in this sort of, you know, popular folklore history. They, they just represent that. So, and, and this goes, it's also interesting because this, like the, the that image of, of both, uh, uh, that is both a, a very romantic image, but also a sort of, you know, fearful image. I mean, you have that both in, in, in radical circles, but in, in just mainstream society. I mean, pirates are popular among political radicals, but they're also popular at any regular, um, you know, uh, what do you call it? Like a custom party or wherever you, you're supposed to dress up. Like kids like to dress up as pirates. And so that attraction, pirate movies are very popular. So that attraction goes through all classes and all through society. Yeah, I think one way to think of this, this is kind of a structuralist way of of thinking of it, is like the pirate is the is the alluring, but ultimately terrifying mirror image of society so if you sometimes think you know life is boring we've reached the end of history with all of these you know roads and laws and regulations but everyone in the west gets to eat and go to college and everything and of course this this is not true but this is a very common you know middle and upper class narrative in the west then wouldn't you like to you know leave your family and go on an adventure. And that sounds wonderful. And then it's going to come with it, danger and violence. And so one of the ways this narrative plays out is you're supposed to learn at the end that what you actually want is a bourgeois existence. Because if you gain freedom, freedom comes with it, monstrous behavior by you or against you and fear and terror. So in that respect, the pirate narrative is a is an explanation for why anarchism is wrong, for why radical thinking is wrong. Stay home, stay, stay safe, be Bilbo Baggins in your little hobbit hole and, and don't, don't go messing around with stealing jewels and things like that because it seems fun, but pretty soon it teaches you that's not the world you, you want to live in. Does that, does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, if you, if you look at, so what's the purpose of all these stories for, for mainstream society? It, it serves this double purpose. On the one hand, it allows you to go, you know, to escape into these imaginary worlds of, of freedom. And you can exactly, you, you, you all these uh, things that keep you, um, that restrict you in everyday life, you can leave that behind you. And so you watch the movies and, you read the books and, and and you live in this fantasy world. So you can satisfy that need. But at the same time, there is also, as you say, very often at the end, the moral lesson that that you shouldn't really go there because it's not going to turn out well. So, so it satisfies this need on the one hand, but it also keeps you in place where you're at in real life. So it, it really, you could say, it, I mean, largely has a sort of pacifying uh, function um, for for most people, I think then the interesting thing from the radical perspective is, does it own? Does it have to be that way, or could you also approach that narrative and actually draw some inspiration out of it 
for radical action rather than just being happy that you've had this little secret imaginary journey but but you know now you're safe back in your everyday life and that's how it's supposed to be so i think that that would be sort of the challenge for a radical both interpretation and adaptation maybe of, of pirate tales but but for most people i mean what you described i think is the is 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 the mainstream function of pirate folklore yes okay i want to come back to that idea of of radical action but now i want to you know venture into this world in which i am truly ignorant so in what sense were pirates actually you know radical actors or or anarchists um knowing uh, as you know my i have a very broad definition of anarchism on this show but in what in what sense it, did it represent um freedom community perhaps a form of racial egalitarianism when, when we're thinking about historical pirates and of course as an American, especially as an American in, I live in North Carolina, um, which was, was one of the great pirate hotbeds yeah. is where Blackbeard uh, met his end. So we're thinking for, for Americans, at least it's that golden age of piracy in the Caribbean and, and the Southeast. So is there truth to this, this sense in radical circles that the pirates did offer a, in, in some ways, a, a true alternative to the imperialism and colonialism of that time. Mm. So in, in some ways they did. Let me say something real quick before I get there about the golden age, because this is really the, it is actually called the golden age of piracy. Um, so we're talking the, the late 17th century to about 1725 very much centered in the Caribbean and then venturing into the Indian Ocean around Madagascar and, and on the west coast of Africa. And why you call it the golden age of piracy is because that is the period that has given us all of the uh, images that, that we, when we just speak of pirates, sort of associate with those communities. So the pirate flag, the Jolly Roger, and the... Uh, you know, peg legs and the, the parrot on your shoulder. And I mean, some of that also throughout history, of course, has been exaggerated, but this is where, where that comes from. Because in, in, in the broader sense, if you, for example, just identify piracy with, let's say, sea robbery, that's sort of a different phenomenon because people have been robbing other people on sea for a long time in a lot of places. And and purpose is always sort of different. But what's special about this so-called golden age is that you, in fact, do have communities that do not have a, a land base and are often integrated into a community there at, or that who do not, as it also happened in the Caribbean before the golden age, are sort of more or less mercenaries who, who prey on ships, trading ships of other nations, not as official soldiers, but as uh, what they would call privateers, as uh, basically state-sanctioned pirates uh, that, that, that were used in a trade war. So what you have during the Golden Age are communities that have really, uh, that, that are under no protection of no state, that are a nuisance to everyone, um, that are in that sense lawless and stateless, and really sort of based on 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 themselves and 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 uh, making their own rules. And there we're already getting to this point where, of, of the question, you know, how how anarchic or anarchistic were those communities? I mean, if if you just um, um, define anarchism as it often happens 
even though it might be a vulgar definition as as anti being anti-statist or something that that's out of the control of the state then yes i mean those those were anarchic uh, communities in that sense uh or an example for uh, anarchism or anarchy is the question if sometimes people when you speak of anarchism they want to see some kind of ideological element there that was absent i mean there was no great political theory behind that so so let's stick to the term anarchy maybe and an anarchic communities um if you associate with anarchic or anarchist communities if the ideology comes in communities that are not just outside of state control but that are also as you say egalitarian um based on mutual aid and solidarity you see certain parts in those private communities that that uh, uh, correspond to these notions, and then others that don't. So I, I think it's a mixed bag. So so also, I mean, relative to their time, they were certainly more egalitarian than the uh, Bureau uh, American societies uh, where most of those those pirates originated from. Um, so, for example, I mean, they 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 signed the, the pirate communities when they were founded. Some of that, um, some of those documents, um, uh, were available to to historians or are still available. So they they basically signed rules of conduct that, for example, um, uh, stipulated the how the uh, the booty would be divided. And it was fairly egalitarian. I mean, you had the captain and the quartermaster and they'd get more, but it might be a double share, whatever. It's not like, you know, the the, the capitalist who gets 50 times as much as, as the workers do. Or, or so the, the strong hierarchies that were characteristic of, of Euro-American societies at the time weren't as pronounced in pirate societies, but they existed. Um, you mentioned racial equality. Uh, there was certainly there are different all sorts of indications that there was racism in pirate communities, but there are also indications that it was indeed easier for non-white people to become at least relative egalitarian crew members. So I mean, they weren't, um, you know, they they were not as slaves on the ship. I mean, there were some examples where, where pirates were involved in the slave trade, but very often also people of, of African descent or Native American descent will become regular uh, uh, crew members. So relative to their time, yes, there was, there, there was a, there wasn't, there were progressive notions in pirate communities, but nothing really indicates that they were prime examples of what we today sort of envision as egalitarian, anarchist communities with no leaders and you know consensus decision making or whatever your associations are so so it, the short answer is yes some yes some no okay there's there's so much here that I want to talk about this a little bit longer so the first thing uh, in terms of there there not being anarchism in terms of a a theory of how and why anarchy in an anarchic community is the right way to live um again I assume as you know, Gabriel, because we've talked some, Kropotkin is very important to me as, as a thinker. And he, he certainly argues that anarchism is not necessary for an, for an anarchic community, that in so many ways, anarchism is a, a natural 
even evolutionarily like required state of being in humanity. And it really takes a lot of work and effort to create what, you know, the, the kind of civilizations that, that we know now with all of these hierarchic structures. In that sense, it seems to me that the pirate communities are a great example of not of anarchism, not of the theory of anarchism, but hey, if you, if you strip all this away, you're not going to get some sort of well, really well-reasoned commune um, like it was drawn up by Proudhon or Bakunin or something. But you are going to get this, you could say, natural or organic form of organization because it's just simply obvious that the captain shouldn't get 50% of the of the loot. And I, I hesitate to go too far with things like obvious and organic and natural, but it seems like this is a good a good test study for how anarchism is a sort of, Graeber and Wingrow argue this in their new book also, anarchism, or not anarchism, anarchy with these certain freedoms and these certain forms of mutual aid is the sort of default of humanity. And it actually takes a great deal of work and time for elites to create this, this hierarchical structure. So we cannot look to them and say, oh, look, they created this commune, we should create a commune like that. But we can look to them and say, hey, you know, if you remove uh, sailors from the Navy, they actually will, will still be able to sail ships, will still be able to fight. But without so many of the hierarchical things that the Navy assumes are necessary to sailing a ship and fighting a war. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, very, very, I mean, <laughs> You, you allude to a very, very concrete example. I mean, a lot of the pirates were actually came from, from Navy ships and, and one of the motivations, and sure, I mean, there was, you know, you, you, have, you know, rob other ships and you might get money more easily or people, I guess, were dreaming of really hitting it big and getting a lot of money and being able to retire as some pirates actually were able to do. Um, so all of that certainly played into it, but I think, um, and I mean, you know, we can only really speculate because there are so few documents, but but a major motivation for a lot of these uh, people to join these pirate communities was that they were coming from communities where uh, circumstances where life wasn't exactly a lot of fun, either as, as, as soldiers on Navy ships or as sailors on uh, merchant ships with a very harsh regime. And so these pirate communities offered a possibility or offered an opportunity of, of living in what really was relative equality and also relative democracy. I mean, one thing about pirate captains, for example, is that, yeah, okay, so even if they got a little bit of a higher share of, of the booty, they also had certain responsibilities. So it was expected that in times of you know, economic crisis, there wasn't a ship to rob for a while and, and um, people, the crew, the, the resources were running short since the, the, since the captains had been able to accumulate more reserves because of the extra uh, share they got uh, in the booty. They were then also expected to share that among the crew. So there was a certain, almost like an insurance function involved in that. And plus pirate captains who didn't... Um, do their job properly were quite easily, I mean, that was partly also, again, stipulated in those rules of conduct. I mean, they could basically be voted out of office. Um, so, so of course, I mean, you looked at those communities and you'd be like, okay, I can, yeah, I can be a part of this rather than, you know, working 18 hour 
days on on the merchant ship under under uh, the you know a sort of harsh regime of sadistic over uh, format. Um, that that was an attraction. I think that's one of the reasons why many joined, knowing that this might entail a very short life, but it was still more attractive than a perhaps longer life under the circumstances they came from. Yeah, so that was the other thing I wanted to talk about is the is the navy, um, the especially the British navy, because uh, I'm guessing, especially if you've seen some of the more romantic depictions, the Horatio Hornblower, all that stuff, it's it's hard for us to understand if you haven't studied this period. I don't know anything about pirates. I do know a lot about the British navy, how horrific it was to be in the British navy. The first thing to say is it was most of the time a form of slavery. People were uh, either impressed, which is the thing that America fought the War of 1812 over, which is to say that British citizens who were on one of these merchant ships could just be pressed into action. A ship could sail up, stop that uh, merchant ship, take people off of it, and force them to work. I mean, it was a form of enslavement. You got paid, but you know, you talk about short life. A lot of them died before they ever right. got paid. So if you're thinking, oh, pirates, they're terrible. They're violent. They just sail up to ships and take slaves. Well, they didn't always take slaves. Sometimes they took new comrades, but the British ships pretty much always did take slaves. If you want to talk about pirates are violent, no one is more violent than than the army and the British Navy is as violent as possible. And especially, you're talking about these pirate codes and listeners, I'll, I'll put a link. I think just Wikipedia has a page that has like most of the extant pirate codes in English. If you read the British Navy regulations, they are so much harsher and more violent. Leaving aside right. the fact that there's so much more hierarchy and the captain, I do think the captain gets half of the prize money. It might be a quarter, but far right. more. The British Navy captain gets far more than the pirate captain. So sure, hierarchy is still existing, but the British Navy captain cannot be voted out, as you say. Right. And his, But the other thing is the British Navy captain is putting people to death all right. the time. That's like a it's like a weekly duty to put someone to death on a, a large enough ship. So in 2022, you think, oh, pirates, they're bad, they're violent, they murder, they steal. Sure. But compared to the British Navy, they are much less violent. I think they do less murder and they do a lot less theft. I mean, the Navy's job, whether they're privateers in trade wars or if there's an actual war, the, the key Navy job is to capture merchant ships take men off them, impress them as sailors, I would call that slavery, and, and steal the wealth. So pirates are doing exactly what the states are doing, probably doing it, no, definitely doing it less brutally. And then the problem now is that we have, I think it's less popular these days, the Horatio Hornblower and the Patrick O'Brien Master and Commander series of these noble British Navy ships. And I must admit, I, I enjoy them very much, but they really are. If you think the pirate stories are romanticized, the idea of the British Navy sailing around the world and liberating people and striking blows for liberty, that is a form of romanticization that is right. far worse than the pirates. And when you put it, not just you've been saying, Gabriel, put it in their context of their time. Yes, their time, but put it in the context of the other armed sailing organizations. And I don't think you will find anything that 
compares to the British Navy in the record of the pirates. Does that sound does that sound right to you? Yeah, I mean, if you make, I mean, it's, I think it's an easy, a simple calculation, especially if you put the context off both, and it, it, it was a package, if you will, the, the, the British or also other European uh, Navy forces and the, the merchants, and, and look at, I mean, also the context in which this golden age of piracy emerged. I mean, it was in the, in the triangle trade between Europe, the Americas, and, and, and Africa. And that was part of an imperialist enterprise that you could argue was based 100% on plunder. That's what it really was about. You were stealing things. And so the pirates took a tiny fraction out of the plunder into their own pockets. Um, and so in that sense, if you, do, if, you, if you do the math, yes, that was far less uh, brutal or, uh, you know, inflicting on anybody than, than what, what the, uh, the, the merchants and the armies, navies of, of the states did. Um, and so, so in, in, in that, that is a very important aspect in general. If you look at the history of piracy, especially of the golden age, that it really was a phenomenon that came out of the, the imperialist era. And in some ways, again, also in, in racial attitudes, for example, did reflect that. I mean, it's not that someone being brought up in the British Navy, the second they transferred to a pirate ship, their their entire view of the world or all everything they've 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 grown up with and been taught disappears but they certainly entered a world where a lot of that was put into question there were different perspectives and and again it 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 certainly was relatively way way more progressive and and liberating for pretty much anyone who entered yeah thank you for making that point which i think in talking about the navy i missed this key thing, which is that these navies existed in order to enslave and steal. That was, that was the whole point. So the narrative that pirates are bad because they enslave and steal. You know, one of my neighbors says, you know, you're not a, you're not a criminal if you have an army. It's the, it's right. the same thing. As long as you can have a hereditary monarch sign a piece of paper you're not a pirate anymore. And those are the famous privateers that you mentioned. And once and that and from, from an anarchist perspective, that doesn't hold up very well, does it? Mm-hmm. Oh, this this um, form of slavery and violence and rape is fine because the government signed off on it. That is and and so pirates. Uh, and the other thing is you're right, there's a in terms of you know some some tiny bit of plunder. Obviously, the average victim of a pirate is just going to be another another person, someone who might even be indentured or enslaved. But the the people whose pocketbook are being hurt are the aristocrats, the merchant adventurers, the big companies. I mean, it is a robbing from the rich situation. That's not to uh, excuse or, or, or fail to acknowledge the violence of piracy, but it does seem they come out better in almost every way compared to the I mean, the, the British government, it was, it was piracy. It was piracy in India and it was piracy in Africa and it was piracy in South America. That's just, that's just piracy. At least the pirates called themselves pirates. I don't think, uh, I don't think the British monarchs acknowledged their villainy at all. In fact, I think they built monuments to themselves. Yeah, that's certainly right. Okay. Um, so something else I'm going to need to cover at some point, a tradition I don't know as well, but there's definitely an uh, Italian tradition of brigands, which seem to be kind of 
land pirates who uh, have have been probably treated the same way, far less romanticized than pirates, but they seem to have a similar thing. But I won't I won't call on you to talk about brigands. I'll just say for the listener, brigands will come up at, at some point. And I think Italy is the place. Partisans and brigands get sort of blended together. There's the very, go, go ahead. No, there is, I just want to say, I mean, for people interested in that, and there is, there, I write about that partly in the book. I mean, if you look at um, Eric Hobsbawm's, for example, writing about social rebels, and he focuses a lot on, on bandits. And, yes. Uh, there are very clear structural similarities to to the role that pirates play, both in their actual, the the, the, the way they interfered with um, uh basically capitalist expansion in, in their territories. The difference there is, you know, here we, we speak of certain um, territories on land and with the pirates, it's territories um, on the seas. Um, but also then in terms of, of, again, the folklore and the role that these people played in people's imagination and how, especially for uh, the poorer parts of society, they they did serve, romanticized or not, but they did serve as an inspiration for rebellion against authorities. And, and there, there are very clear similarities there. Excellent. Um, the next thing I was going to talk about is go back to talking about, you know, radical inspiration in present day. Before that, though, I don't know if this is something you can speak to um, there was, you know, a new, a new golden age or a new peak of piracy, you know, in the Indian Ocean centered around Somalia. And I think that was also another time where people had to, there was this very easy narrative, which is, you know, true in a certain way, like Putin is bad, pirates, the pirates are bad and they were killing people. But then there's a much deeper narrative that the piracy that emerged coming out of Somalia was the was the product of a of a country that had been destroyed, of a broken society, and a society that was broken, as is the case with most broken societies in the world, by forms of Western imperialism and, and neoliberalism. So I guess one thing, I don't know if you have expertise about this, but just the thoughts of like, pirates do still exist, yeah. and they are still, like real pirates, like African pirates in the 21st century, I don't think they get romanticized i think they're pretty purely vilified um there was that movie captain phillips which at least offered a a a humane portrait of its its primary pirate character but i would just say and you can say if you have anything to add to this that when you're hearing about pirates and bandits today these things do still exist. You can try and think about them in the same way that we're thinking about these golden age pirates, not to celebrate their violence, but think of them as the product of, of this larger system, which has violence and villainy at the heart of it, just done by parliaments and governments. Does that, I, I, I don't know. I, I just came up with No, that. no, I, and I mean, that's perfectly right. If you look at, I mean, a lot of the pirates off the Somali coast called themselves the Somali Coast Guard, essentially. And, and so the reason is just, so one thing, as you say, I mean, the, 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 the sort of social, political, historical background to that is a uh, country that was broken because of, uh, at least among other things, foreign intervention. And so, so, so there, there is that background that you create a social situation where people become 
um, essentially desperate enough to to employ means such as as piracy, but also in the Somali case, I mean, there's a lot. There's it's about fishing rates. It's about dumping toxic waste um, in uh, off the coast of Somalia because the state is broken and there is no functioning coast guard that will prevent uh, foreign powers from doing that. And 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 all of this plays into it. So so there is a lot of similarity, similar things now because I mean the Somali uh, piracy has largely disappeared in the last few years because of uh, better surveillance and 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 uh, again modern navy ships that that patrol those areas. But we have also piracy off the coast of Nigeria, which is a lot related to the oil industry there. And, and again, it's just, it's just, it's the same patterns. It's people without power who look for a, um, both a economic opportunity, that's always a factor, but also a different, for them, probably more dignified form of life in rebellion to the, to the powers, uh, foreign powers often in their areas. So you have that. The big difference, um, because I've been asked that question a lot about the Somali pirates when the book I thought, came out. I thought I had come up with such a good question, but so uh, sorry. It, it, no, it was. It is a good question, and it's, it's an obvious question. But especially when the book came out, that was when when that that Somali piracy was at its height. The big difference, um, which is the big difference between the Golden Age pirates and most other pirates uh, in human history, is that. Also, the Somali pirates are, in a sense, as I said, more sea robbers. So those people, they don't have their own community, maritime communities far away from any community on land or any state. I mean, those are people who happen to live in coastal areas, have experience as fishermen or in sailing for other reasons. Maybe they've worked even on, on bigger trade ships before. And and so the most obvious way, if they want to go, quote unquote, the criminal route, is to look to the sea and see what they can rob there. If they were in different areas in the mountains of Italy, then they become, you know, bandits there or robbers or so. So so what you're missing is this element of being an exclusive sort of self-contained community that the golden age pirates on their ships were, where their ships really were their homes. I mean, they had safe havens around the Caribbean where they were then in Madagascar or West Africa where they could sail to, but that was, uh, you know, to spend a few days on land. Their home really were the ships. So you don't have that in Somalia. You don't have that in Nigeria. You hardly, there's also a famous period of piracy in the Mediterranean in Europe, which even preceded the golden age of piracy. But it was the same thing. It was people living on the coast of North Africa and they were getting on their boats, sailing out for a few days and doing sea robbery, piracy in that sense. But there's a big difference. Also the question, for example, if you started to look at, okay, so what do these communities, pirate communities in Somalia look like and what are their codes of, it's very different because, again, I mean, in their everyday lives, they're just part of the wider coastal Somali community and sort of abide to the social rules that exist there. So that is the big difference. But in terms of, you know, what is the motivation for the, again, quote unquote, criminal acts, that's very similar to what happened in the Golden Age. Fantastic. Thanks for that clarification. I was thinking, I mean, as you talked about this, so the one of the most famous, if not 
the most famous work of American literature is this book, Moby Dick. And it really does use, it really does talk about the way that the ship and is a world, is a community in and of itself. And that is part of the reason why there's so much glamour about the, the era of tall ships, because you are outside of the all of the societies that currently exist. So it makes complete sense that that's how that's how the golden age of pirates were able to create a sort of communal way of being because the, a ship requires that. And then that communal way of being has to be enforced in a, you know, a fairly hierarchical or a less hierarchical way. And Somali pirates who will, you know, take a relatively small ship, maybe even a boat off the coast for a brief amount of time. And maybe there's only five of them that, I mean, the, the, this, this option no longer exists in this, in this world to be, to be so cut off without a right. enormous deliberate attempt to live off the grid or something like that. Um, right. So. Which also I think ties into this, the, you know, the, the, this sort of strong image of especially golden age piracy and the, the freedom part, because as you say, this has become like, you know, uh, satellite communication, all of that. Like it's, it, you know, it's, it's no longer feasible in that sense, but at the time you really had, I mean, you were out on those boats no one really knew who you were like the navies, you know, had to. I mean, it was it was difficult. The ocean is big, you know, to even just track those ships down at the time. That was a that was a, a big effort, like, kind of like a cat and mouse game. Um, even along the, the even along the coast of North Carolina, for example. I mean, it wasn't you know you had to maneuver the ships for a long time to then find the hideouts and and. Um, so so yeah, and I think that all plays into it. It was that was at the times offered an option of freedom that in, in that sense no longer even exists. Yeah. I, I mean Melville himself, <laughs> I talked about this fantasy, this middle class person who, you know, goes and gets on a boat. Melville himself was a was a downwardly mobile upper class person who had entered the middle class and just got got sick of it and went to to get on a whaling ship to have right. this experience so um, it wasn't piracy but it was the same it was the same idea and whaling and piracy were always were always connected um yeah. all right so we've we've entered i took us back to the 19th century which is my area of expertise but we've entered the the 21st century so let's talk about pirate parties i mentioned to you earlier um, that there, there's this thing in Europe called pirate parties, or at least there were 15 or 20 years ago. And I remember when they popped up uh, in America, we had no idea what to do with them. Certainly Germany was, a, was the place that they were most talked about. So can we start with pirate parties? Can you tell us what pirate parties are for those of us who don't have much of a grasp? And then from there, we can go to some other ways of thinking about pirates in terms of radical action. Yeah, the pirate parties emerged essentially out of a discussion about copyright and the internet. That was really what it was, and that was, but that was turned into, um, let's say, sort of a civil rights type question, where it was that you know this is you know the question of the commons also. So this is a something that has been created by people for the people, and it shouldn't be regulated. Um, but also a question of uh, 
personal freedom. Like you should be able to use this without being tracked and traced and, uh, you know, surveyed and, and, and all of that. And, and so in, in that sense, it started out as a, you could say there were single issue parties in that sense. But then as it always is the case, even at the time, I mean, there was a sort of sense of political crisis, um, which is a long going, you know, political crisis really. And in, 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 in also the legitimation, I guess, of European democracy. So that plays into it. Um, a big frustration with the political establishment and all of that. So, so, so very quickly, uh, there was this sort of protest party image attached to the pirate parties, and that image gets passed on from different nowadays. For example, that it, it in in Europe, there are in several countries, they're fairly successful. Um, you know, COVID sort of. What's the right word? It's all become so sensitive. Uh, people well, are critical COVID, of the vaccinations, you know. Yeah, COVID resistance parties. COVID resist. That's called yeah. that's called COVID resistance parties. So they <laughs> pop up, and I guess they, you know, partly uh, now tap into these the the potential protest voters, as they're called. And so you have those different periods, and 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 when the pirate parties emerged 10, 15 years ago, they certainly tapped into tapped into uh, that that sort of demographic people who otherwise maybe wouldn't vote or who, you know, kind of change their, their votes every time. And so there was a new party to vote for. Um, so it was a combination, I think, of that. And it was fairly successful. As you said, in Germany, they they were, they entered, I think in Berlin, they were in, in, in the, the city parliament. Uh, there were representatives voted into the European Parliament from different countries, uh, among them Sweden, where I live, which has a pretty strong, the so-called Pirate Bay, which some of your listeners might have heard of. Yeah, uh, I'm sure. I'm from, sure they're familiar with Pirate Bay. Comes from Sweden. And so they were fairly successful here. But then, as it is also often the case with these parties, um, even though they can have quick, fairly big success, um, there usually isn't, I mean, there certainly isn't a, an organizational infrastructure behind them that would have, you know, grown through the centuries with, as it happened with other uh, big political parties. Sometimes there's a problem of funding. There is a problem of then having people involved with very little political experience. So infighting happens. So nowadays, I can't think of a single... I think there are some now sort of delayed. I think in some Eastern European countries, pirate parties still have electoral success, but but in most countries, no longer really. So it's it's a phenomenon that uh, you know sort of had an influence on 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 uh, politics in Europe for a few years, but it's kind of on the way out. I think partly also because the if you go back to the the single issue aspect. Um, more parties, other parties have developed their own uh, policies on the internet and copyright and whatnot. But you could also argue that big business and big tech has won that battle in a sense. I mean, you know, they've they now certainly control um, the internet and the sort of organized resistance that the pirate parties in a sense also represented weren't really able to stop that 
And as it often is, I think then people, even if they're still fed up with that development, sort of look more for individual solutions to that. Uh, you know, you get your whatever, you, you find your, what are these things called? VPNs or something where you hide your identity on the computer. And, and, and so, so that those become the solutions rather than an organized sort of a resistance that the, those parties maybe uh, promised to offer. So yeah, so so we're looking, but oh, let, let's tie it. So why pirate parties? I mean, I think that is in a sense interesting because I think that I mean it's no coincidence that they were using that name, right? Because even historically, as we're talking uh, with with related to, to freedom and trying to escape a web of constant surveillance and being under permanent control, I think that's what that sort of alludes to that that no you should there should be and in this case then it becomes the virtual space of the internet that there should be freedom to move there should be freedom to do things out there that aren't you know not every step should be controlled and this is something that i guess again pirate folklore or pirate imaginary where where that you know that's something that the pirates stand for and so it'd be used i think it's similar in terms like pirate radio for example um I mean, what, why is that called pirate radio? It's basically because you want to do a radio that, you know, doesn't get detected, is not controlled, or they use this, that free space that is out there that the pirate did, which is, you know, as we said before, is becoming smaller and smaller, but you're still trying to find your niches. And, and, and so in these contexts, the term pirates or piracy still pops up. And I think that's legitimate. I mean, this is not, you know, it's nothing that you just pull out of thin air there is a, a sort of a historical justification to using that term so i think that's all fine yeah that makes sense and i think it you know when you think about the piracy the the golden era of the of the 90s and the early 2000s the the napster and torrent era of pirated music i mean certainly there's still plenty of pirated music and movies but it does seem like the, the there's not as much piracy as there was in 1999 that too had that sense of like, this piracy is going to destroy this industry. It's antisocial. The government is going to crack down on it. On the other hand. I mean, just to throw it in, because we mentioned the Pirate Bay. I mean, those folks, you know, they were put on trial and they got their sentences. And so there certainly was repression as an answer to that. And there's also, you know, but there was also this sense of, of, of freedom and you get the EFF in America. I mean, it is interesting probably because of parliamentary reasons. The people who do this work in well, my cat, my cat joined us. Um, so no, that's fine. They're allowed to have an interest in piracy too. <laughs> yes, but yeah, cats are, are the original pirates. Um, plus they were on all the ships. Uh, yeah. my, my cat is actually a Manx cat. Um, which was a, a kind of cat that originated on the Isle of Man, but was so effective at killing uh, rats that it traveled all over the world on ships, including pirate ships. So that's how I'm going to tie it. Like this cat's ancestors probably served on pirate ships, honestly, certainly served on Navy ships without a doubt. Um, there you go. Okay. So I was going to say, we don't get the parliamentary, we don't get governmental angle, but our government... Uh, it's so much harder to start a small party and get anyone elected to anything in the United States. Right. So when you get 
advocates for piracy and electronic freedom, you get it from some activists and then professors and academics who the professors are one of the very, very few groups of people who have sort of time and space to resist the status quo while also living a living a comfortable life, at least in the United States. There's the cat again. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about before we go is, uh, so obviously listeners of this podcast are familiar with Sankt Pauli and the uh, the pirate. Oh yeah, yeah, you had a program, yes. I did. So in what sense, beyond the pirate parties, in what sense can the pirates be a, it's sometimes called a usable past, you know, something we can look back to in the anarchist and the radical communities or are there people doing this work right now besides the the Jolly Roger for the football club in Hamburg? Right. Well, I think that, I mean, the, the, the reason why it's, you know, it's become a symbol for St. Pauli, of course, is a combination of the club sort of being a rebel club and trying to portray itself as a rebel club, which is fine. And Hamburg having its own pirate tradition um, around people like Sturtebecker and others, again, preceding the golden age. So, so it sort of, you know, fits into this, both the, the social, political and historical context. But I think also what the St. Paul example shows, and again, I think it's, it's, it's similar to what I said about the, the pirate parties. Um, like you use the, the pirate ima- images um, in a context that is anti-authoritarian, rebellious, um, trying to offer at least glimpses of a different way of organizing society um, in then that an anarchist or if you want leftist context that would be more egalitarian and based on uh, mutual aid and solidarity rather than competition and all of that. And so I think that's why the pirate flag and then pirate symbolism still pops up in those contexts. Squats, for example, very often would use it. And again, it makes sense. You, you liberate space. You try to build your own um, autonomous community, self-managed community. Um, and I mean, you know, it, it's difficult to start arguing about who is allowed to use that symbol and who is not. I mean, it's out there. People, you know, will use it in whatever way they want to. Uh, Yeah, I mean, images very similar to the Jolly Roger have been used in terrible political contexts, you know, right-wing, racist, and so on. So you, you cannot control that. But when it is more explicitly uh referring back to to this golden age of piracy i think it mainly refers to a notion of different liberatory again more egalitarian sort of anti-authoritarian rebellious communities and i mean that is something that those sorts of rebellions will go on um forever (laughs) um and and as long as the pirate imaginary is as strong as it is in the folklore, those symbols will pop up. And I, again, I mean, I'm all in, I don't know, I'm in support of that. Uh, I, I, I understand why it happens. And I think there is no reason to object to that. It's an easy, clear message to a lot of people. Then you always have to dig deeper and look at the politics that are behind it. But but I, again, there is a there's a there's a clear historical um, trajectory there that that does connect 
the pirate communities of the golden age, preceding phenomena, current phenomena. And, and if you have your symbols and tales that tie this together, it's all good. Oh, that sounds great. Um, it is true. There was definitely both the people I talked to about Tongpali, there was some anxiety or concern about whether the pirate imagery had become more important than the than the actual values uh, of the club. I can tell you in the United States, there's no one who supports Song Pali because it has pirate imagery and then doesn't know about the doesn't know about the other elements. Perhaps if it becomes a Erste Bundesliga club and is playing right. Bayern, you might get kids who have a pirate shirt just because it's a pirate shirt. But you got you got to dig deep to find Song Pali right now right. in America. The other thing that's just so obvious to me that I can't believe I didn't think of is uh, you're right, squatting. Squatting is the place in terms of this. You know, it's outside of the rules, but it's also, you know, the product of the rules and the product of the way the rules and the hierarchy and the economics have oppressed people. And then it's a place where you can, that image I was talking about from Melville of this community that is, you know, connected to the rest of society, but also at the same way cut off and doing its own thing. It seems to me that the, the, the squatters and the various autonomous communities it makes sense that the pirate legacy is alive there. Um, this is this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show, and thank you for all you, you've been so helpful uh, in terms of helping me with the podcast. So thank you for that as well. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure getting to know you over email, and it's wonderful to finally talk to you. Well, thanks. Thanks again for inviting me. Great pleasure for me. And sure, if there is, you know, if, if, I, if I can help with other great episodes, always happy to. Oh, you've, you've been so much help. Thank you, Gabriel. There you have it. Pirates. Anarchic. At least compared to the merchant ships, the slave ships, and the navy ships that were carrying on legal imperial piracy. Just another way that it seems to me that maybe the anarchists have been right all along and I am just catching up. Remember that you can email me at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And you can find much more at everydayanarchism.com. That's also where you can make a financial contribution to the show if you want to help keep the show going. Even if you can't give, I would love to receive an email from you and you can still help the show Tell a friend, that's the best thing you can do, but of course the algorithm would love it if you leave a review at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. All that's left to say is that the music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.